Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everybody. You're very welcome to this live recording of the Irish Times Women's Podcast coming to you from Ayr's very swanky headquarters here in Dublin 8. And for once, it suits us colleges because it's right beside Houston Station. Yay, to air. <laughs> I'm Cathy Sheridan, and just our usual reminder that you can subscribe to us on our award-winning podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, whatever app you listen to podcasts on. And, of course, you can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Also, we aren't ashamed to say that we love a bit of praise here at the Women's Podcast, and it gives us a real boost on a gloomy day. So if you like us, and I'm sure you all do, why don't you go along to iTunes and say so with a glowing review and then go and tell all your friends about us. You'll have a fun time talking about us. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast and you can always email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. We get some of our best ideas from people who write to us, so please don't hesitate if you have something in mind that you want to get off your chest. Now, with that out of the way, I'm delighted to say we have a great episode lined up for you today. We are helping to mark the end of a fifth annual fundraising and clothing collection drive by Dress for Success Dublin, which kicks off every year on International Women's Day on the 8th of March. The aim of the campaign is to raise vital funds and clothing so that Dress for Success Dublin can continue to support clients and facilitate conversations in workplaces around Ireland that highlight some of the issues women face in their professional lives. So if you thought Dress for Success was going to be a fashion parade here today, well, on one level you're disappointed. On the other level, I think it's a most fantastic enterprise. On stage with me this morning is the very successfully dressed Sonia Lennon, who is not only a designer, a broadcaster, a businesswoman and a social entrepreneur, but the founder of Dress for Success Dublin. Also joining the conversation this morning is the newly installed boss in this very building. It's day three for Chief Executive of AIR, Caroline Lennon, the first woman to occupy that role in the history of the telecoms business. Woo! <laughs> Last and certainly not least is Gillian Harford, who has worked at AIB for more than 30 years. And doesn't look a day of it, actually. Her current role is Head of Diversity and Inclusion, a job that sees her lead the implementation of policies like paid paternity leave and miding the gap for women on maternity leave, all aimed at creating a fairer workplace for everyone. Yes! So, Sonia, I'm going to come to you first. You found a dress for Success Dublin in 2011, whole seven years ago, with the aim of promoting the economic independence of women by providing free career development tools, including getting them help with clothes and styling for job interviews and interview prep sessions with professionals. On today's podcast, we're marking the end of the organisation's month-long fundraising campaign, which began on International Women's Day. How did it go? I have to say it was our most phenomenal uh, International Women's Day yet. Uh, I suppose International Women's Day is one of the pillars of our fundraising uh, throughout the whole year. We had 50 companies involved, um, and that was everything from uh, headline sponsorship of AIR through to groups of five and six women getting together in their workplace uh, to, to rally a clothing donation to offer to our clients. We were completely overwhelmed um, if anybody followed the uh, the campaign on the day, I don't, was, did anybody follow it on social media? It was extraordinary. Um, for those of you old enough to remember, I felt like Challenge Annika. Uh, 
Uh, it was literally whistle stop in a taxi all over the city. Uh, I think we had seven events on the day, seven speaking events. Um, but but the main thing is that we we raised an awful lot of money for our clients. Um, and given that uh, our annual target of women to serve is seven hundred and fifty, and we're already at three hundred and fifty women served, uh, we need that money to be able to deliver the service. Briefly, Sonia, how does it work in practical terms? I think it's a brilliant idea that a woman can go to someone for professional help with her clothes. It doesn't sound like a lot, but we're going to talk about this later on and some of the weird things that women have been asked over the years during recruitment and points awarded for matching handbags and things. (laughs) So it actually is a very important thing. It is, and I I think the thing about Dress for Success is that... um, it's kind of an iceberg effect. So the, the bit of the iceberg you see above the waterline is the suiting, and that's where we give a woman an outfit that she can present herself with dignity at an interview, look appropriate, and tick that box before she opens her mouth. The other piece, piece that you don't see is the large body of work around HR uh, that we coach her to position herself, to position her experience. Returnships is a big uh, burning issue at the moment. If a woman has been out of the workplace for 10 years, how does she position herself for success at interview? And we really guide her through that. Um, so uh, once she has the job, she continues to be a dress for success client. And she can come to us for uh, CPD, for mentoring, uh, for peer networking, all sorts of initiatives that can help her to keep her career progression on an upward incline. Okay, this is really important stuff. And how does she reach you? So we work very closely with over 75 referral agencies and they're any agency that helps a woman to get employment through uh, education or training. So it could be a local jobs club, it could be a community group um, and they... Uh, go through the process with that organization to make sure that they're ready for interview so that we are using all our limited resources and our volunteer time to the absolute best advantage. Caroline, day three. Day three. Day three. Do you you, you recall having worries when you were setting out about how I'm going to present myself? How am I going to get through this interview process? How did you get where you are? Was there some of that involved? Um, I think the I think if you start at the, the last question, how did I get where I was? I think I um, you know, if I summed it up, I think I made myself visible and I also declared out loud that I wanted to be the CEO of Air. I wanted to be the first um, female CEO of Air. I wanted to leave the company and you know, you say, Well, once you put that out there, it's out there and you know, you have a slim chance of getting it because there's only one CEO of Air. So, you know, you're kind of putting your, you're, you're putting your, you're putting your neck out there. Um, but I do think with women, if you want it, you need to declare it because people don't necessarily know that you want it. And usually when they're filling CEO roles, they fill them with people who are like the same CEO before that and the same CBO before that. I think a big problem for women is that visibility piece. If I'm picking a CEO and I've always picked a tall white male, just for example, then I'm probably only going to look at tall white males, maybe subconsciously. Um, Whereas, you know, maybe a tall white female who's declared herself as a job needs to get on your radar. So I think that visibility piece and being clear about what you want and being brave enough to say that's what I want is really important. Were you clear about this when you were 18? No, no. I mean, I could write write a great book about my career and make it look very strategic looking backwards, but no, I wasn't. But I think as I've made decisions and taken wrong turns and then, you know, course corrected, as I've got a bit older, a bit more, maybe a bit more wiser, I, it's become clear what I want to do and I know what I'm good at. Um, I'm very good at getting people um, rallied around an objective. Um, I used to say this to an old boss of mine. He said, how do you do? And I said, because I'm very good at persuading people who don't work for me and that this is the right thing to do and we're going to do it. And he said... That'd be great because I can't even persuade people who do work for me to do it. You know, so, uh, you know, I developed that and I knew that I could do that and I knew what I was good at and I knew how I could put that best to use. But to make it happen, I had to say it. I had to do loads of other things. It's not just about saying it, but I think it's not going to happen if you're quietly beavering away, working really hard and delivering, but you haven't declared it and you haven't made it known and people don't see you in that potential spot. We'll talk later about all of those things that are top tips that I know Gillian has particularly about how to, because Gillian, with her, her enormous experience in, in uh, human resources, uh, I'm telling you, you're going to hear 
some excellent stuff here today in terms of, of recognising what you're good at and how to progress it in your career. Gillian, how did you, how did you get into the, the HR end of things? Um, by accident, uh, which a lot of things happen. I was a very quiet school leaver, one of those people who didn't put their hand up, and I ended up in the bank by accident working for a great boss who got transferred to HR one day, and he, I was at his farewell drinks, and he said, putting me in HR, I know nothing about human resources. And I turned around and I said, well, I don't think anyone in the HR function does either. So you'll be perfectly at home. And a week later, I got transferred into HR in 1981 and still there. Did you go off and do 10 master's degrees or something, though? <laughs> Um, I didn't initially uh, because one of the the great things about banking at the time was that most of us went in as school leavers with our leaving cert uh, and they were organisations that trained you up. So once I got into HR, I kind of thought, I like this. Uh, So I started with a primary degree and then a number of years later, I kind of thought I need to understand the business. Uh, So ended up doing the MBA, but I think it was part of a... A philosophy. I came from a family where my mother worked, uh, so we went on the basis that investment in education was the same for boys and girls and investing in myself. That's a hell of a start. Sonia, personal challenges on the way up. You do a whole... I have to come in there and say that the, the phrase that rings in my ears from my mother when I was growing up, which, which was, if you're not part of bringing the money in, you're not part of the decision making. And I think that holds true in every aspect of our lives. I must bring that thought home. Bring it home and share it. Yes. Um, and, and, and so you sound as though you're very well equipped by your mother to go out there and grab whatever was available and just not, and be fearless. But have you come up against real challenges in the workplace where you, maybe because you're a woman, maybe because, because you're not, you're not, you're not a, a shrinking violet. No, no, I'm not. Um, I mean, one, one of my uh, first career strategies um, when I was a very hedonistic youth was to go on the dole and make jewellery out of FIMO. So that didn't really work out. Out of what? FIMO, it's like a clay that you bake. So this was, this was, this was what I was going to do, which I announced with great gusto to my parents. They weren't terribly... Who are delighted. Not terribly keen. <laughs> um, so, you know, in some ways it's been a bit of a comedy of errors. The one thing... That, that I am is essentially unemployable, I think. So I've always been freelance. I've always paddled my own canoe. So I don't really understand a corporate structure and how that works. And I think because of that, I don't experience the inherent impediments that that can create um, because I'm just making it up as I go along. There is uh, something, Sonia, going back, though, that actually did very much reflect on the fact that you were a woman as opposed to a man in, in uh, the TV world. You are paid less than your male co-presenter. Yeah, I think that's, that's a now infamous story. Um, when, ten years ago now, extraordinarily, myself and Brendan were put together uh, to co-present Off the Rails, um, we discovered quite early on that there was a pretty small disparity um, between our between our our, our pay um, and to, to his eternal credit, he he split the difference with me, and we were able to move on uh, on a platform of mutual respect and and a deep trust that grew and grew because of that. Um, and and I think now tackling as we are the whole issue of equal pay and e- equal opportunity, I think it's really important to say this is not about. Um, bashing the issues it's about creating solutions because if you look at the the pay scale disclosure that's just happening in the UK pretty much everybody's getting it wrong that's not the issue the issue is what do we do to make it right and we're going to come back to that because there have been a number of very positive developments at at, at, um, government level as well as everything else Carolyn little things that you've come up against in your on your way to the top um I suppose in terms of barriers, I mean, I think the first barrier I put in front of myself and that I, you know, I, I left school in the 80s where, where there wasn't a lot of jobs in Ireland. So I decided, to, you know, to be quite pragmatic and practical, being from the north side. And I went and did an IT degree based on no real interest in IT, but just because I thought that was where you were most likely to, to get a job when you came out of college. And sure enough, I did. 
And I, you know, trundled along, you know, made a bit of progress career-wise, you know, but certainly wasn't a strong trajectory until I, we were launching the first... Remember, everyone used to buy their insurance through brokers. We were launching the first direct insurance. Um, and I was a business analyst on it. And it's the first time I'd ever dealt with customers, like people, who were going to buy this. And I was fascinated by why would you... Why would Cathy buy it? Why would Sonia not buy it? Who was buying it? Where were they living? Why did... You know, and I suddenly thought, I'm doing the wrong thing. You know, and I had no business background, no marketing background. It had all been kind of technology. And I said, if I, you know, I need to change this. So, so I, you were fascinated by the psychology of yeah, it. Yeah, but like the idea that, because I'd always, I knew I'd worked in big IT departments, you know, looking after other IT people. It was all technical, but I never had to deal with a, a customer at the end who was buying something that I was making. And suddenly when somebody was buying something that we were making, I said, wow, that's really interesting. Now, why is she deciding to leave her broker and go direct? You know, why, you know, are they all people in Dublin? Are they all women? Are they all, what, who are they? And suddenly I thought, I'm in the wrong spot here. And I, um, I gave up, and I gave up my job again to the horror of my mother at the time because, you know, permanent pensionable jobs were, you know, hard to find and went back and did a full-time master's and uh, came out of that and decided I wasn't going back into IT um, and I wasn't going back into financial services and got found my way into telecoms and mobile and marketing, commercial. And my career trajectory that had been kind of going along like that steady, you know, not terrible, it went from that to that, where I recognised I was doing the right, you know, doing the right thing. So I think my first barrier was that I just fell into something, didn't really think about my skill set and whether it would suit me or whatever. I suppose it was practical. I got a job, I got paid, and it worked. But uh, so I think that was the first big learning, you know. You know, and I know it's a bit of an old cliche, but you will absolutely do better in something that you know that suits you, that brings out your passion, that brings out your energy. And you know, it took me a little while to find that, but once I found it, then. It was, uh, it, I was, it was a way. I mean, you know, I have had a lot of, um, we all have a bit of luck in our career. I've had a lot of luck and a lot of support. I think the, the barriers sometimes can be, you know, there's less, more women now, but on my way up, there have been less women. So you often find yourself in a situation where it's 95% men. And like, I'm not a shrinking violet either, but that can be, you know, that can be challenging. And I found it on my first child I my first son my son Dara was 10 and a half pounds when he was born so like I was like enormous and I remember going to this meeting in London you know of global marketing team and it was all men and I remember looking in the door thinking am I gonna fit in there you know I'm like I have to get past them and there was no chairs and I remember getting picking up a chair from another room and going in with my chair and my bag and my you know tummy and I don't exaggerate about that because I actually went to watch Dublin one day, and my husband looked at me and said, are you going to make it in the turn in the turntable? So it was a real belly, and it was a real challenge. But I remember, like, the sweat running down the back of my neck, thinking, I'm going to hit the belly off something, I'm going to drop the chair, I'm going to drop my bag, God knows what's going to fall out of it. So, you know, being a minority can be challenging, and being a minority in those situations kind of can be challenging, but you kind of, you dust yourself. I didn't drop the chair or my handbag, and I didn't manage to hit my belly off anybody either at the time. And Dara was born safe. He's <laughs> he's yes, he's fine. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gillian, um, you, you have a story which is, 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 um, reflects on the recruitment practices long gone, I hope. But actually, tell us about the matching handbag shoe syndrome. I do. I, I have used this once or twice. Uh, so as you'll have guessed by now, I have been working for quite a long time. And I have seen a lot of changes, but... One of the first times that I worked in recruitment in the 80s, we used to recruit an awful lot of school leavers. So you'd go to a hotel for a week, there'd be 10 interviewers, you'd see 10 candidates each a day, and you'd seen nearly 1,000 people by the end of the week. And I was the only woman on the panel, a bit like Caroline, you're kind of there in a, a very different world. And at the end of the first day, you present on your candidates. And one of the interviewers was doing a scoring on first impressions, and he gave the girl five extra marks for having a matching handbag. And I was sitting there going, a matching handbag? Why, why would that make a difference? To and match was, her shoes. Oh, it matched her outfit. And then as the day wow. progressed, you know, there was another girl who had not only a matching handbag, but she had gloves. So she got five extra marks for gloves. And I was sitting there thinking, do I have to give five extra marks if a boy has a, a shirt and tie combo that match? But none of them could understand why I thought that was a bit strange. And we had this conversation around, 
how does that impact how she's going to work? And they're going, oh, but Gillian, she took the interview very seriously. And for me, it was the first time that I could kind of see visibly that women were being treated in a slightly different way to men. Uh, so I spent a lot of that week trying to challenge in a slightly different way without being seen to be a closet feminist. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad to say things have moved on. I do think there is a, a bit of a balance, and we've been uh, working with Sonia on Dress for Success since the beginning. There is something for a woman in terms of confidence. There is something about fitting in and being part of the in-group. And whether we like it or not, there is a uniform for men. Uh, there is a uniform in terms of how you fit in. But for me, in the recruitment process, it was, you know, how could we focus on what were the great abilities that this girl had rather than her five marks if she was lucky enough to have an extra bag or gloves rather than five marks for having great talent? Sonia, is there a work uniform? Well, I think... I think for women, I mean. For women, yeah. um, not really, and I think there's so much more choice for women than men that it makes it more difficult, it you does. know, and, and yes. the psychology of the consumer will tell you that choice is the enemy, um, so, so the more you have available to you, nearly the, the worse it gets, um, and, and I think that's why we've seen women of all walks of life, of all socioeconomic backgrounds coming to us looking for support. I think, you know, we have the skills to be able to say this is the right, the right way to present yourself. But equally, if you're not coming through us, go and, go and Google what is the best thing to wear to an interview. And the, actually, the one tip that I give people if they're going to an interview is go to the campus where you're, where you're interviewing. See what people are wearing walking in and out. Your job is to present yourself as though you fit into that tribe. That's a very good tip, actually. Gillian, have you a work uniform? Um, I want I, to say she's dressed entirely in black today. <laughs> yes, probably like most women of my age, my work uniform tends to be black. Um, I have different. I have different things that I wear for different occasions. So today, I love the fact that it's radio. So only the audience here care about what I wear, and everybody on social media, and everybody on social media. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I I think there are certain events like Caroline is on our board. If I was going in presenting to the board. I want to feel comfortable fitting in, uh, so I'd probably wear something a bit more formal if I was going to a session with our grads or our, our, our younger teams. I'd want to wear something that, that would make me feel a bit more comfortable and would fit in. So I think as women, we adjust in terms of the audience that we're going to and the level of confidence it's, that it's, we it's, need. Yeah, it's working that out. Uh, Caroline... Um, on day three of her massive job is sitting here in a very stylish Lennon McCartney. Lennon Red. Courtney. Lennon Courtney. That's, that, that's the other ones. It could be both. Uh, it's a Lennon Courtney dress and it is very beautiful and colourful and she has lovely boots and unsnagged tights and all of those things. That you can see. That, that actually <laughs> point. The woman has given some thought. You did not decide on this at six o'clock this morning. Um. <laughs> Well, no, I no, it was five. No, no, I, <laughs> no. I knew I, I, I like uh, the, the clothes that Sonia and Brendan design. Uh, Sonia knows this, and so I, you know, I buy something out of there. I bought the yellow T-shirt, by the way, yesterday. Oh, Shall I the yellow T-shirt? <laughs> so, I, so I knew Sonia was going to be here. So, and I really like the dress and I like the colours. So, I decided like today was a good day to, to wear it. Well, I like the sentiment. Thank you very much, <laughs> Caroline. Look, we all love one another up here. <laughs> um, in terms of what gets in the way of women progressing in their careers, Caroline? What, give me a couple of bullet points. Well, so I think the, the elephant in the room, of course, is always children. Uh, you know, my poor boys are always telling me they're going to have counselling because I'm pro-quotas and I'm all these kind of things in the future. But, you know, I think it is, you know, it is a challenge to manage your career progression and have children. There, you know, there's no doubt about that. And we talk about, I know we're going to talk about gender pay gap, but I think the research says, you know, that there's a 4% gap, you know, every time you go off on maternity leave, because unfortunately kind of things move on. And, and, and that, is, that is a challenge that, I kind of, that needs to be addressed on both sides, I think, by the woman herself and by the companies in terms of... You okay, know, what can the woman do? So, well, I suppose... So I think you have to say... Like, so I actually had, had three children between um, 2001 and 2007. 
and I had obviously three maternity leaves and I actually managed to get, I got promoted every time I came back. Now, I didn't take usually long ones. Um, and I what was, does that mean? Well, for the first two, for the first two, I took four months each and the last, my last little boy, I took six. On the second, my second son, Finn, I got a call from my, I said when I'm, don't forget about me. My career is important. I'm, I want to progress. I'm going on maternity leave. I will be back. If things come up, I want you to tell me. And then it's my decision if I want to completely ignore them and go back to hanging out with Finn or, or, or I don't. And on Finn, my second son, I got a call from my boss and he got a lot of criticism in the, in the company at the time and actually from a lot of women. He called me and said, I can't give you all the details because it's not just you impacted, but there's an opportunity coming up. And honestly, I think, think about it because if you're not here, you may miss out on it. And it may be a couple of years before it comes home around again. And I had a chat with my husband about it. And I said, look, I really want to be in the frame for this. And he said, okay. And he took parental, I went back six weeks early and he took parental leave. And, uh, and it actually gave me my first big break. I was back and they were looking for a marketing director for Vodafone Ireland. And I got the job. And it was my first time around the senior management table. Now, that was a call. Other people might say, you're mad, you should have finished your maternity leave. You know, everyone's different. So, but, I, but, but you also needed your husband to step up at that yeah, point. Well, or I could, have just, I could have just done it or whatever. And Sean was very happy to do it. And, you know, Sean's at home full-time with the children now. But, um, you know, I think I would never have heard about it. I think my boss, if I hadn't said to him, don't forget about me, let me know, probably would have felt, you know, that he shouldn't have disturbed me on maternity leave. But I kind of gave him permission to kind of keep me in the loop. So I think that's what you can do yourself. But that's very indicative of your mindset and your approach to your work. And Mm -hmm. I think that's... um, So so not every woman feels that way about Mm -hmm. their work and they may go off into their maternity leave. Don't disturb me. Don't come near me. This is this is a a welcome break from a job that I don't particularly like, which is a very, very different situation. Mm. But do you think on balance, Caroline, that a woman needs to be as proactive as you were to get to where you are now? I think I think if you're out of the office for quite a long period of time, you have to accept that things may move on, that opportunities may come up. And you have to ask yourself, do I just want to go and accept that? Enjoy my year, two years, whatever suits you and your family. I think it's a completely personal family call. But if you are saying, no, actually, I really feel this is my right time, promotion-wise, I'm ready or whatever, then I would say, let people know it's okay to let you know what's going on. And then you make the decision. I always just want to make the decisions for myself. You know, if the decision is, no, I'm happy, I'll wait until it comes around again. But unfortunately, as you go up the ladder, those opportunities, you know, it gets narrower those opportunities don't come up that often and if you miss that miss out you generally are a couple of years kind of kind of waiting so i would so i'd say on the woman's side if you want it let people know that it's okay to keep you in the loop and then you decide and on the company side i think you know when we, women come back in particularly when women have their second child the research is they often go you know what it's too much the cost of childcare in ireland is expensive the hassle and trying to manage it you know what can we do to make that you know, transition back into work, you know, easier and better and to support kind of women in that. You know, it would be great to see, you know, more men taking parental leave. We've introduced parental leave in air quite recently and we're, you know, it's a slow start, but we've seen, you know, over 300 days taken, you know, since we started and we've seen more and more men signing up to it. So I think, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have parental leave and you divide it between you as best suits your family. But I think, there's a lot of things that are going to happen in society before that's, that happens because I'm not sure how comfortable all men are about, you know, taking the big majority of that leave. Well, that's actually a bit of a challenge indeed. And it's, we are beginning to talk about it more and more, Gillian, aren't we, about that end of things? We are. And, th- and that's probably the most interesting thing. We're talking about it now in ways that we never did before. And I agree absolutely with everything that Caroline has said. Like, first of all, as a woman, you have to feel that it's okay to find your voice and talk about things that you want. But you also have to be able to do it within an organisation that will help you have what we would describe as adult conversations. Uh, We talk to our line managers quite a lot about this under a new programme that we're calling Mind the Gap. And I joke about that terrible conversation when a woman comes to you as a people leader, whether you're male or female, and they say those dreaded words, I'm pregnant, you know, and your first thought is, 
oh my God, my head count. And your second thought is, HR won't give me a replacement. And your third thought is, I'm going to have to wrap her up in cotton wool for the next six months. And then your fourth thought is, congratulations. And why can't congratulations be the first? And then the second piece, well, let's have a really good conversation around how we're going to manage this, how you would like to manage it. And some of it is the the simple things. Like if you take Caroline's point about women losing out financially because they're on maternity leave, one of the things we introduced three years ago is that even if you're on maternity leave, we still give you a salary review when you're gone so that you don't lose out. Uh, When we were looking at paternity leave, we already had paid paternity leave before the legislation came in, uh, but it was half the amount of time. So we doubled it, but we still left it as fully paid because we were saying, how do we encourage men to do this? Because one of the things that we're very watchful of across financial services, uh, we're part of the 30% Club, and we've done a lot of research in this space, Men and women both want flexibility, but men and women both see flexibility as career limiting. And part of the reason they see that is because women don't fare well for things like maternity leave returns. So if we can make family absences still be part of a career rather than separate, then it becomes more attractive to both men and women. So you can wait for the government to do things. You can wait for infrastructure But actually, within organisations, we can change it for people today. And that can start to change things from inside out rather than outside in. Sonia, do you see that happening around you? I mean, you're involved in the clothing industry, which is very heavily female. Um, And interestingly, in the big gender gap reports last week in, in Britain... It was shown that even, in the, I think it was in John Lewis, where they have, there are more women than men employed and in the four quartiles of, of, uh, of authority and within the company, women are still being paid less. So what is going on there? Are women just working less? Have you any insights into that? Oh, yeah, I have that sorted. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I, look, we're, we're, this is a very, very exciting time. We're in a third wave of feminism, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's about a sort of a new blended equality at its core. So this is not about some sort of militant uprising. This is how can we make our lives better? And I think that's really at the core of everything that we stand for in Dress for Success. It, you know, we talk about women running away on maternity leave and closing the door and saying, thank God I don't have to be there anymore. Go, go all the way back. And if if that workplace can be somewhere that is fulfilling um, and that she feels respected, maybe she'll be much more eager to come back at the end. So I think we have to be careful not to try and fix the symptoms, but to go to the cure. And it's a much, much bigger job. But the good thing is that we are talking about it. And we're talking about it. I'm delighted to see so many men in the room. And I always say that. like It is incredible to see the men who come and support these conversations because you are the answer, to be honest with you. Because there are men who, who see this, who understand it. I was amazed the other day listening to a radio report about gender pay gap reporting. The amount of texts coming in gender pay gap deniers saying, this is rubbish, you know, and this isn't true... Well, I'm really sorry, it is true. And there is gross inequality in the workplace. And our job is not to give out about it, but to find a solution to it. Caroline, in terms of, you know, women finding people who look like them in the senior ranks, I noticed that you are on record as supporting quotas, um, uh, gender quotas on boards. Do you still feel that way now that you're the boss of all bosses? <laughs> yeah, I do still feel that way. And I know it's a, it's a slightly sort of controversial view. I suppose, so I, I suppose it's, it starts from a basic principle. I believe we'll have better run companies, better run governments if we have a much more balanced and representative leadership makeup. So I just believe that fundamentally. There's loads of data to back it up, but I believe that. And I believe to get there, we need to make some fundamental moves. And if we don't make them, we'll be having this conversation in 60, 70 years. And I hope once we make them, and, you know, boards and executive teams and governments become representative, then we don't have to talk about it anymore. It's just the way it is. So I do, but, I, but it bothers me when people then say immediately, 
Um, oh my God, that means we'll be putting, you know, unqualified women into Mediocre roles. women. Yeah. Well, mediocre you know, women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we've had a lot of mediocre men, so yes. mediocre women, which is the answer. But no, but the answer is, I also believe there are tons of qualified and capable women out there for those roles. And I want to know that they were visible, that they were interviewed. And when you looked at the full picture of all the candidates, that you picked the right candidate. And if that was happening today, like we're not a minority, we're 50% of the population. We're as well educated as our male peers, in some cases more educated, but we're not making it. So, so yes, I do. I, I am a supporter of coaches. And it, it, it's interesting because I, when I, I, I did a thing um, for tea on it, and I, I was talking to some senior women. Now, these women would you know, be quite successful and had made it. And they said, you're going on and you're going to talk pro quotas. You're mad. Don't do it. I said, no, I believe in it. No, don't do it. You're mad. Don't do it. Anyway, I went on. I did it. did my thing. And I was coming out. And there were lots of women in the audience. And they were probably, I'd say, at the middle management layer, but, you know, with aspirations. And I swear, they surrounded me. And they said, thank you for saying what you said. We can't say it because if we say it, it looks like we're looking for, you know, a handout you know, whereas you can't have preferential treatment. treatment. But you, because they considered me to be more senior and potentially to have made it in so much as anyone's ever made it, but, you know, they said, you can say it. And they were delighted that I said it. And honestly, I was in the town centre the week later and this woman came over to me in the car park and said, thank you for kind of saying that it does need to change. And, it, you know, and it was great that someone said it. So, so yes, I am. It's, it's the, Excellent. It's the Jimmy, short answer. What about you? Would you, would you support quotas? Or do Absolutely. you see other ways forward? Um, well, I actually make a little bit of a distinction between quotas and, and targets because I think quotas are sometimes uh, seen as something that's forced upon you, whereas targets is something that you volunteer for yourself. But it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I chair a diversity board, and we formed three and a half years ago. And the first time we met, we all, as a group, with one exception, the male voice said we are not going for quotas or targets. We don't want any tokenism. We want this to work the right way. And within a couple of weeks, we all came around to the idea that within business, you need some kind of target for focus. And if you don't have a target for focus, you don't get action. Everybody wants to achieve things, but they need to have something to aim for. Uh, so we started, like a lot of organizations, with a target for the board. Uh, we then moved it to a target for our leadership team, we now have a target for our senior manager population. And it's not because, you know, if it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done. It's more on the basis that if you have it on the radar, people talk about it. People build action plans around it. But we've never once talked about tokenism. We've never once talked about compromising. It's still about talent, but it makes people think about it. So if you're shortlisting for a job, we want you to think about why are all the applicants male or why are all the applicants female? Because what we've discovered with targets is that it can work both ways. So in your support functions, you need a target for male representation in the same way as your P&L areas. You need a target for what's, female what's representation. P&L? Profit and loss. Yeah. Uh, so uh, to come back to what Sonia was saying at the, at the beginning, where the money gets made. Because what we discover in financial services, sometimes the representation looks good because averages and targets are fantastic. But by the time you strip out finance, marketing, HR, legal, and look at the areas where the real decisions are made, that's where targets become really important because that's where you encourage uh, at entry level, at mid-career and at senior level in terms of better representation. And I presume, Sonia, with the, with the, um, with the uh, Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission bill now being voted into law, the commission is going to have the power to oblige employers, like Caroline, to, uh, with more than 50 employees or more, to produce the results of their equality audits. Now, is that going to make a difference? Is that just going to name and shame, or is it going to create more chat around women not pushing themselves forward and wanting to work part-time and running away? I think it's more than chat, and I think we've already seen early sort of uh, results from the UK um, reporting, uh, and that's available for everybody to see um, uh, through the UK website. Every every business has listed all their pay scales, um, and 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 there are difficulties around that. Um, that that we're we're in a very lucky position because this is coming down the track next week. Uh, I'm in Leinster House with Dress for Success. We're sitting uh, around the table 
uh, led by Senator Lorenc Clifford Lee, and it's the first ever cross-party parliamentary committee to look at gender equality in the workplace. Um, which is just, it's fantastic. So we're, and that's really around tackling any legis- legislation that can support gender equality in the workplace. So um, it, it is happening. The fact that the UK have gone ahead um, and, and done the first pass, if you like, and there are um, problems with it, we can now uh, learn by those mistakes and, and set out the stalls so that, we're, so that the data is correct and giving us a, an absolutely honest reflection, uh, stripping out all the areas where there are kind of gender-heavy roles. Um, so we're in a really good position. Caroline, are you living in fear and dread of this? No, actually, we, we, no. We've started actually looking at it ourselves because we, wanted, we have um, uh, a diversity um, group here called She Leads um, looking at you know, these issues. Um, 70% women and 30% men, so we're d- delighted to have our, our male colleagues part of that. And one of the things we took onto that was to look at the pay and, and to analyse our own data. And actually, we do have some gaps, and we're surprised at some of them because, you know, the way some of our staff are paid, you would think there's no opportunity for there to be a gap, but there is. So at the moment, we just had the raw data, and now we're trying to understand it and try, and, and, and try to work that out. So, uh, you know, I think transparency and visibility on all these issues always help bring them forward. I mean, I think there's always teething problems. There's always people that will deny it. But I think it never, it never takes an issue backwards to be transparent and share and look at the data. Never. Well, actually, just to add in that, uh, funny, the results from the UK, um, it, the, the reaction of both the public and employees to, to the disclosures um, has been predicated on um, the strategy to get out of it rather than the figures themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really interesting. What people want to know is, yeah, yeah, whatever, there's a problem, we know there's a problem how do we fix it? And, and that's where a company can really um, get great kudos, I suppose, for getting ahead of the march, for, for disclosing early, and, and having the right ethos around how to make it better. Is that where AIB is headed, Gillian? Yeah, because we're in the situation, we've uh, just over a 1,000 employees in the UK, so we had to go through this exercise. Uh, so we've already had to do this for our UK business. And, and was think that painful? It, it wasn't painful, but it was interesting. And I suppose the, the three things that we took out of it is, first of all, not to be afraid. Uh, because whoever thought that something like this would give impetus for topics of discussion and conversation and media coverage. And I think what we find is employees are now very savvy about employer brand. So if you as an organization are afraid to disclose, straight away employees will turn around and say, that's not a company that attracts me. They really like transparency. What we probably found as we went through the data, and this is something that sometimes gets a little bit lost with the deniers, that is probably less about equal pay, and it's more really good data on representation. So if you look at what comes behind the data, an awful lot of the pay gaps are because you have very high representation of women at lower levels and very high representation of men at senior levels. So, for example, it forced us to do a deeper dive. And what we found was we didn't have gaps in jobs, but we had gaps in representation. But I think what it does lead to is, what are you going to do about it? And because it's so public and because everybody now has data and comparable data... That would be the terrible thing if it just became annual reporting where it became a very small news cycle because everybody just said, well, the figures aren't changing. That would be a little bit soul-destroying. But because you have to put a lot of time and investment into how you put your data together, it does show you where the gaps are within your organisation, which helps you then think about what you would do to change it. Okay, and one last question about women and money, Caroline. (laughs) Are women bad are as bad as I always was at negotiating their own pay and terms? So it's hard to make that a general statement. I would say over my career, I've, prob- I've definitely had more men come to me who've worked for me and come to me and with more proactivity about their salaries and where they are um, than women. I do think women have more of a tendency to be a bit head down, to trust it to kind of annual cycles, to trust it to it will happen as opposed to coming in and saying, you know, I've been doing this for X, this is what I'm delivering, I think I should be paid Y. Certainly, you know, over the years, probably 75% of the people who've come to me with those kind of conversations have been men. Um, so, yes, I think they are more reticent 
to, to put those issues um, on the table. Now, we're going to talk about top tips because we have three amazing women at this table. So this is when everybody just <laughs> raise your ears here. Because one of the things I notice, Gillian, in your top tips is don't wait for somebody to tell you that you're brilliant. If you're really good, then be confident in that and go out and show what you're worth. But the problem is, how do you know you're really good? Because we're women and it's our, we keep our heads down and we, we tend not to want to compare ourselves to the big man, two desks down. I think we all know deep down uh, what we're really good at. Uh, we talk an awful lot uh, lately uh, about syndromes, which always sounds good when you're talking about women. Uh, so there's imposter syndrome, where you always believe you have to try harder because you're really not good enough and it needs to go beyond that. Uh, we talk about the princess syndrome, uh, where you keep your head down and hope that if you do a really good job, somebody will come and put a little uh, tiara on your head at some point. And we talk about the superwoman syndrome, where we believe we have to do everything to be great at something. Uh, so one of the things we are trying to uh, work through uh, as part of our leadership programs, as part of our women's network, is actually it is okay to put your head up every now and again and talk about something that you're great at, But what we've discovered as we go through it is that women in general, and and there's always exceptions, tend to be more risk-averse than men. Um, So what we try to talk about is it's okay to take a risk every now and again. It's okay to do something different. Uh, Even through our family network, we now talk about how we raise our children. So if you think about any of you who've ever had a, a toddler, you know, when the girl climbs up on the back of the couch, you kind of go, oh, be careful. And when the boy climbs up on the back of the couch, you say, oh, boys will be boys. You know, so as women, we need to be okay to be brave every now and again. You know, we teach our boys to be brave. We teach our girls to be good. Maybe we need to do a little bit more vice versa. But you have to create a climate where everyone in the organization feels comfortable to find their voice and raise their voice. So it's not seen as just women shouting about what are they great at. It's an organisation culture where everybody can talk about what they're good at. Now, because unfortunately, we are running out of time, but some other, other top tips of Gillian, whom I would listen to all day, is mind your energy. Networking is essential, not a perk, which obviously requires time and maybe not playing golf, hopefully. Uh, parachutes are fantastic inventions. We all have them, but as women, we don't always use them and don't be afraid to use them. Know your own worth and protect it. Be brave. And we already talked about not waiting for somebody to tell you you're brilliant. Sonia, in, what, what, would you, what would be your top tip? Um, I, I think knowing your strengths is a really, really good one. Um, and certainly I have a 13-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. Um, and I'm very conscious to, to point out what their strength zones are to the point that uh, my daughter Evie turned around to me the other day and said, so you're telling me I'm a really good organiser with a really good palette. Right. What do I do with that? It doesn't matter. You know, if if you're clear with the next generation, these are your strength zones. This is what you can make big strides with easily. And that is, to Carol Ann's point, that is the sort of knowledge that will put you in a position which, which has you flying. And certainly... Uh, echoing the the bravery piece, I know that I um, sort of held my own career back in the early days by being afraid to 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 stand up and I, you know as a stylist, I probably should have gone to london and 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 progressed my career there because it was only so far i could I could go here i don 't regret it at all. I did what I did, and i 'm happy with where where I landed, but I had a fear that that flipped once once I moved into RTE actually. Um, and, and push myself outside my comfort zone, that bravery is very addictive. So if you, if you can really kind of hold on to that bravery piece, the rush is quite heavy and, and it keeps on going and, and certainly it makes the, le- the next leap less scary. Yeah, she makes brave sound very exciting. <laughs> Carolyn, yeah, your just... top tips. I actually sense that I should have shadowed each of you <laughs> when I was sort of a long time ago, and I would have learned to be fearless and brave and not to have paid any attention to the negative voices in my head. What is your top tip, Carolyn? How did you keep going until you got here? I think it's a, this is a very practical one, and I, and I got it from, from the woman who first promoted me, and she, she said, and I think it's particularly relevant to women because they tend to be the primary child carer, um, 
you will never, if you want to have a big career and you want to have children, you'll never have balance in your life every day. Don't even think about it. So some days accept it's all about work. It just is all about work. At the moment for me, just become the CEO, day three, it's all about work. What you're looking for is balance in the round. So, and I look at my life and I look, how am I, you know, am I doing enough for the kids? Am I doing enough for myself? Am I doing enough for work? And I look for, you know, overall balance in my life. And I check myself if it's kind of tipping this way or tipping that way. But I honestly think, you know, and it's, maybe it's the superwoman syndrome. If you try to do that every day, it's just not going to work. So just accept it and go with it. Don't beat yourself up, you know. But when you get the opportunity to, for it to be all about the kids, take it. And when you get the opportunity for it to be all about yourself, take it as well, so... Well, we have no princesses here, anyway, I can tell you that. <laughs> no one's ever given me a tip. <laughs> <laughs> one tiny question, one last question, very quick, if you can answer it very briefly. Do we have reasons to be cheerful, Gillian? Yes, because the generation coming behind us demand it, expect it, and won't settle for less. Sonia? Yeah, the horse is bolted now. This is a conversation that's alive and it's not going anywhere. Care of that. Yeah, no, it's on the agenda and it's going to stay on the agenda until we have solutions, I think. Thank you so much for coming in this morning, Gillian, Caroline and Sonia. It's been a real pleasure and I wish we'd another hour. And I think that's as good a place as any to leave it for today. My thanks to our guests, Sonia Lennon, Caroline Lennon, who aren't related, I believe, and Gillian Harford. A special thanks to Dress for Success Dublin and to Martina, Dara and the rest of the very hardworking team at Alice PR for inviting us to take part in this conversation and a final thanks goes to Air for hosting today's event in such salubrious surroundings. And on Caroline's Day 3, which is quite something. I, I feel very honoured to be part of this. Today's podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle, sitting here, and Jennifer Ryan also sitting here, with the always exquisitely dressed JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Until next time, thanks for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.